The city names alone, Selma, Memphis, Little Rock, Montgomery, and Topeka, are a roadmap of the nation's struggle for equality in terms of voting rights, educational opportunity, and jobs. These landmark cities are on the U.S. Civil Rights Trail and help define the glory and sorrow of conflict for freedom that still registers today. Joining us on the Kansas Reflector podcast is Lee Sintel, author of the official U.S. Civil Rights Trail book. He's Alabama's tourism director and the force behind a 128-page guide to more than 120 historic sites across 14 states, including the Brown v. Board of Education and National Historic Site and Sumner Elementary School in Topeka. Welcome, and thanks for making Kansas part of your book tour. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Thank you for taking time. Mr. Sintel, with a project like this, the question arises, where to start? So what inspired you to bring this book together, and how did it really get going? The 12 state tourism directors uh, three years ago uh, created the U.S. Civil Rights Trail. It's a tourism promotion, and we want to encourage people to go to these landmark sites to learn more about the stories of the people, and because for the most part, the the people in the civil rights movement were essentially volunteers who felt like, I can't put up with this any longer of the conditions that either they or their family or their church uh, was going through. And uh, frankly, all of this really started when Harry Truman when he integrated the, the, the military. And so, we, you know, Eisenhower, of course, had uh, sent uh, troops. And so, you know, you got, you got two presidents uh, within a, a, a good throw from here to, that were really uh, in, involved in, in literally starting the civil rights movement, however unintentional that was. But we felt that the best way to learn about history is go there. And uh, I've been involved with Bernice King, Martin Luther King's only surviving daughter. And uh, I did a historic marker in Birmingham about 10 years ago mm-hmm. about where King wrote letter from Birmingham jail. Uh, I found out that even some staff members at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, which is next door to 16th Street Baptist Church, did not know where the jail was or is. And so I was in Leadership Birmingham class that year and thought, well, we need a historic marker. And uh, so we did a marker, and Bernice King came over from Atlanta and uh, unveiled it. And... Um, now, it, it's a touch point. I mean, it's not a place where you can go visit because it's still the Birmingham jail. <laughs> Most you can, if, you, if you misbehave, maybe you can go there and visit and actually see it. Yeah. All right. So, so there's certainly honoring the inspiration and the courage of these people is, is a worthwhile endeavor. You know, when visitors go to these landmarks, you can see it. You can smell it. You can, you can touch history in some sense. And when I think about it, I think a person can go to the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, which is a museum now, and peer into the room where Martin Luther King spent his final moments. 
before assassinated in 1968. Can you can you speak to the power of visiting places on the civil rights trail? Well, even though I've been the Alabama tourism director for now 19 years, I think somebody who wants to get a great overview of the civil rights movement, they should start in Memphis at what used to be the what was the Lorraine Motel when King was assassinated. And because it's it's very chronological, it starts off uh, with the, the the film, the orientation film uh, at the at at the Memphis Museum, and then it talks about Selma and it talks about Montgomery, and uh, they have a portion of what appears to be a portion of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I mean, the first time I saw that, I thought. Wow, they've done a good job on reproducing uh, that. And uh, but yes, for for internationals, we recommend that if they're going to be traveling for a week or two across the South to visit civil rights sites, I tell people start at Memphis because it gives you a chronological overview. And then, uh, as you say, the when you sort of unexpectedly turn and you're looking into the hotel room where Martin Luther King was staying uh, and where he was shot just outside that door, it is, it is emotional. I, I wasn't prepared for how emotional that was to see where you're looking into the room and there's crumpled cigarettes as his... Uh, friends, I, I asked somebody one time, "What kind of cigarettes did he smoke?" And he said, "OPMs." Is that what? He, let's say other people's cigarettes. Or, uh, so, <laughs> uh, and he, you know, he he didn't smoke in front of photographers. Hmm. Okay, so let's go on a virtual road mm-hmm. trip here. Good, good. Let's, yes, let's let's kind of charge into the book and <clears throat> and into history as well. <clears throat> but excuse me, <clears throat> for simplicity's sake, let's start in Topeka. You've been to the Brown v. Board site that honors the U.S. Supreme Court decision that declared separate but equal in education and constitutional. What would you come away with? Yesterday was the first time that I had ever been there. And uh, we had a, a, little, a little talk and a book signing. And uh, it's powerful because, I mean, that, that, is, that is ground zero bet- between the, the school and your federal building downtown, uh, it's it's powerful. Um, I told somebody the other day, and I'm sure they thought I was crazy, because I said, I've been wanting for 51 years to come to Topeka because I grew up in a small town in Alabama that was the hometown of Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was a kid, and uh, that he and his wife came back to the church that I grew up in, that he grew up in, and I was aware that nobody liked him, and that people wouldn't speak to him, and they were mad at him, and they just basically ignored him. You know, this had been his, his church. And so uh, my mother was a history teacher, and so she explained uh, about... Uh, Brown v. Board, and about why people were upset with him, and so I mean this was literally in the mid fifties, and 
51 years ago. I was in Washington uh, for the newspaper. I mean, I went with the publisher mm -hmm. for, for some reason, and I had a, a couple of hours between our appointments. So I walked over to the Supreme Court building with my $25 briefcase that, <laughs> that I thought made me look official. <laughs> and you know, and um, I, I said, I'm from Clay County, Alabama, and I'd like to say hello to Justice Black. And she kind of smiled and said, well, let me see what I could do. And so I wound up spending 30 minutes with him. This was the year before Incredible. he died. Incredible. And told him that I used to go, my twin sister and I used to have birthday parties in his house. Hmm because the man who owned the black house, Mr. White, uh, he had a daughter two days older than me and my sister. And so it's like I've, I've been aware of him almost all of my life, but uh, because I wanted, when I visited with him, I wanted to know exactly, oh, now where was your law office? And so, uh, of course, his frame of reference was 1917. <laughs> Before he uh, left. Yeah, and mine was in the 70s. But, yeah, uh, yeah so I've, I've always been aware of uh, Brown v. Board. And so that's why it was uh, it, it was like a, a quest that ended yesterday when, uh, when I had a, a, a book event there. So let's move on down the road to Little Rock, mm -hmm. Arkansas. After Brown v. Board, I think it was after Brown v. Board that uh, President Eisenhower had to send federal troops in to defy the Arkansas governor who was attempting to block black students from enrolling at Central High School. So if we go down to Little Rock, uh, kind of paint a picture for us of what we'll see. Well, in the, in the book, uh, well, I, I tasked our, uh, our ad agency that, that created the website of civilrightstrail.com and I said, I want y'all to find historic photos of places that are important in the history and then go back and photograph them now so that people will know that that building is still there. But they did such a remarkable job with, on the left page is the, the old black and white picture and on the right is what it looks like today. And it's, it's like a, a split shot uh, put together. I think one on the website, one of them, if you look on the left side, that's the old image. There's a bunch of cops standing on the stairs of a courthouse or a school. I can't remember now which. And on the right, they're not there. So I just thought that was interesting, that the contrast, uh, because the law enforcement was there to prevent something, you know, something, an advancement of the, the cause of civil rights, I presume. Right, and the the photographer that uh, we're using these days, he worked at Southern Living for 20 years, which, well, in this part of the country, you may not I've know seen, what I've a big... I've heard of the magazine, sure. But, I mean, it's... the Their photography, their writing, I mean, it, it is... Uh, the, the South is very proud of Southern Living magazine, and uh, but I would, I would just... Art Maripool is the photographer, and he lives in Birmingham. And I, w I was just blown away with the way that he matched mm -hmm. the the line of bricks from old to new. Yeah, photography can be a magical thing, and that's part of the part of the 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 value of a book is that not everybody can go on a three month sojourn around the country looking at these places, but uh, a lot of people can purchase a book. Uh, so 
All right, so we're leaving Little Rock, and let's go to Selma and the Edmund Pettus Bridge. In fact, that's on a picture of the bridge is on the cover of the book. So when you walk across that bridge, what do you feel? Well, I heard uh, Martin Luther King speak outside of Montgomery the night before the uh, How Long Not Long speech in Montgomery. And... It was ex- it was exciting a couple of years ago when uh, President Obama came on the 50th anniversary of the date of uh, Bloody Sunday, and there were 45,000 mm. people there, and it was it was amazing. But um, well, being Alabama tourism director, I mean, I'm I'm excited when people go to Selma because everybody in the country, when you say Ebenezer Pettus Bridge, they know okay that's Selma. And, uh, but the, the one thing that Topeka has in common with the bridge in Selma and several other sites is that this project, uh, in, including the book, I mean, the, the goal is for about a dozen sites across the South plus Topeka, uh, will become rural heritage sites. Hmm. And that's a... That's a designation that very few people in the United States know anything about, but because we don't have many World Heritage Sites. Even though this World Heritage was a program that was started by Americans in 1972, but every other country except the United States, uh, they have a federal office, and every year they crank out some other nominations. But in the United States, the National Park Service is sort of the gatekeeper but uh, I'll say the fans, which means local people uh, have to do all the work. And it takes about 10 years for, this to, for all this to come together. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're, we're expecting two years from this month that uh, Brown B. Board, uh, the, the school where I was yesterday, will become a World Heritage Site. It'll be the only elementary school in America with that designation. I wasn't aware of that. That'll be fascinating. You can still walk across the Pettus Bridge, right? Yes, and uh, particularly since the movie Selma came out. Uh, what? More, more popular? Yes, um, because uh, we have, uh, Alabama Tourism Department has been marketing civil rights uh, trail for about 15 years. and But since the movie came out, now when you go to Selma, you see people walking across the bridge. Mm. Because a lot of people look at a map, and they know that Harper Lee's hometown of Monroeville is uh, about an hour north of Selma. And uh, so people sort of do both of those. Because the movie Selma has sort of doubled the number of people uh, who even go to Monroeville. Hmm. That's interesting. To Kill a Mockingbird is a terrific book. So let's jettison up to uh, Washington, D.C., and there's, there's a lot there. I mean, it's a fantastic, fantastic place to go look at, at museums and, and art and everything else. But on the mall, Martin Luther King delivered his vision of the American dream. So, um, and, a, and, a, and a, it's not necessarily a short walk, but you can walk to the Supreme Court building mm-hmm. next to the Capitol and... And that's the building where a lot of these changes have occurred. That's the crucible. So 
help us with a visit to Washington, D.C. in terms of these uh, civil rights locations? Well, certainly the, the Supreme Court is, uh, I mean, that that is it. That's why, uh, plus we are nominating uh, the Lincoln Memorial as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. I mean, there is no World Heritage Site in Washington, D.C., and I'm not sure there's one in, even in New York. So it's kind of odd that, you know, some Southerners are, are doing this. But the, the, the thing that was most fascinating to me in, in this research, uh, everybody talks about the, the I Have a Dream speech. In his script, the phrase, I Have a Dream, did not exist. People say, oh, you know, it's the most amazing, uh, one of the most important American speeches. He was winging it. Mm. Mahalia Jackson, for those people who have uh, seen the movie Selma, uh, know that uh, Martin Luther King, when he was depressed, he would call Mahalia Jackson and ask her to sing to him. Mm. And she was uh, five or six rows behind him uh, during uh, when he was doing his presentation at the, at the Lincoln Memorial. And she sensed that the crowd was sort of restless and the, the words were too highfalutin. And so she yelled out, tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. Hmm. Because a month earlier, she had heard him give the, the I have a dream speech. Yeah, I and, was aware that he had given parts of, at least parts of that speech before. Yeah, so, uh, but she thought... Uh, you know, this is 12 minutes into the speech, and it was long and highfalutin, and so she yelled that out. And uh, I mean, there's a book just about the speech, and it describes how when he heard her say that, he just sort of slid his script off to the side and grabbed the podium, and uh, the guy who wrote the book helped write the original speech. And... Uh, King sort of gripped both sides of the podium, and and uh, this guy who had r helped write the original speech said, "These people don't know it, but they're about to go to church." <laughs> and that's when he that's when he wound up and uh, gave an amazing an amazing speech. Same thing w with uh, letter from Birmingham Jail. He was in a dark room. There's a famous photograph of him in a jail cell, mm -hmm. but that ain't it. That's not the jail cell because, uh, because there was very little natural light in the cell where he was for four days. Okay. And he was, his attorney smuggled in some paper and, a, uh, and other stuff for him to write on. And, uh, and that's, I mean, the, the letter from Birmingham jail is portions of, former of previous uh, either speeches or sermons or mm -hmm. thing. I mean, he'd written a lot. I mean, he was a, an amazing writer. and so, But it, it just it shows the power of his talent that he could merge all those things together. Well, in preparing the book, you, I think you may have traveled to all of these more than 100. Well, there's, there's a, what is it, 14 key sites that you talk right. about, and you yes. visited all of those? Right. Yeah, it's quite a journey, right? Well, um, m most of, many of the places I've been before, mm -hmm. and uh, yes, as I mentioned, I, I didn't go back to Washington, 
and but the only place that I had not visited when by the time we finished the book uh, around Christmas uh, was Topeka and um, it's uh, the book is not a description of the sites so much as why that site is important mm-hmm. and but I was inspired about 10 years ago by Bernice King when she said today's young people don't know what their grandparents went through and they don't care and she said and we have uh, uh, the freedoms that we benefit from are, are at risk unless people are vigil and make sure that you know we don't go backwards and so I mean hearing her say that reminded me that as after we started creating the Civil Rights Trail which is in portions of 15 states now that that I needed to do some part as I mentioned to you before we went on the air uh, I was a journalist in the first part of my career and so I felt like I'm going to sort of write a like a newspaper story for each of these cities of what happened and why that was important Mm -hmm. because sort of a sort of a reminder sort of like 101 as to Mm -hmm. why Topeka is is important why Memphis is important why Selma is important and other places so this is published during a period of Black Lives Matter and protests revolving around the lethal methods of law enforcement Um, certainly something that people in the 60s would have experienced as well and now we have debates about critical race theory and so do you think the country has an appetite for visiting these sites and reading books about the history do you do you or do you think people are being drawn to that history a little bit oh i definitely think they are uh and the best example of that is in montgomery alabama when i read about a year before we finished the civil rights trail website uh that an attorney in Montgomery was developing a lynching memorial and a lynching museum. Uh, I thought, my goodness, I don't know if, how people are going to respond to that because our campaign about the Civil Rights Trail, uh, the African Americans won. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's absolutely the opposite of, of the. the the formal name is not the lynching memorial, but that's what everybody calls it, and that's that's what it is. But the first year that the Equal Justice Initiatives Museum and Memorial opened, 400,000 people came. The second year, 500,000 people came, uh, which is stunning. Uh, I mean, the New York Times has given them enormous coverage. And so people around the world... It's not so much people from the South, but people who have probably never been to the South before, but they want to come and see that memorial. Part of that effort is in Missouri and Kansas to recognize and place markers at sites of lynchings. And it's a, it's a chapter of history that I think is shocking to people that, that somebody could just be snatched off the street, accused of a crime, or arrested by the sheriff, and he's the, he or she's in jail, and and the the mob comes and drags somebody out of the jail. It's inconceivable today, you would think, but it happened with regularity in the past. And what I was not aware of until we started this research is that 
all of that started in around in, in the late uh, 1860s after the passage of the 15th Amendment, which said that blacks can vote. And so the Ku Klux Klan and all of this, uh, I mean, this is voter intimidation. The whole mm-hmm. purpose was to scare people in not trying to register to vote. Right. Yeah, I'm sure it was quite effective. It is unfortunate <laughs> that COVID's rearing its head so that Maybe it's going to be a little bit difficult for people to actually take trips and go to some of these sites, but uh, we got our fingers crossed there. All right, so let's 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 travel on to some of the other sites. Uh, let's go to some lesser known uh, in New Orleans. In New Orleans, there's a six-year-old Ruby, I think, uh, who endured what most adults couldn't. That's mobs of segregationists trying to keep her from going to elementary school. Certainly, that's courage. You're scared, but you go anyway. Right. The, but frankly, the bigger story in New Orleans, which there's, there's not artwork or photography for, was uh, Plessy Ferguson, who was a light-skinned African-American. And a, a group of people wanting to challenge the separate but equal transportation law in Louisiana he was uh, he was he was testing testing this and so he bought he you, you would either buy a ticket to the white section or the non-white section mm-hmm. and because he was light-skinned he could purchase a ticket to and sit in the white car and uh, I mean th- this was a scheduled it was a highly structured uh, test of the separate but equal, and uh, but that was uh, the case in 1896. It 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 went opposite of what they thought it would, and so I think it was eight to one against them, and so Plessy versus Ferguson was the law of the land for 50 years. Yeah. Until Brown v. Board of Education. That's right. That's right. Another site on on the trail is Farmville, Virginia. I think a pair of I read a pair of 16-year-old students walked out of their all-black high school to protest the school's poor conditions, and the NAACP engaged in a lawsuit. I think that was rolled into Brown v. Board, and they were real. Those students were really looking for equal educational opportunity, uh, and, and so speak to Farmville a little bit. I love that story. I was not aware of it until we were doing research on this. At the time, the pastor of now we're we're flashing to Montgomery, Alabama. Mm-hmm. In the in the nineteen fifties, a pastor who was from Virginia was the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church before Martin Luther King, and I mean he was he was aggressive, he was hot, and and, and he was from Farmville. And he was he encouraged his niece to do something to get involved, and so uh, Barbara Johns. One day she went around to the throughout the school and talked to classes and encouraged them to go on strike the next day. Well. Uh, they sent a note to the principal saying that there were some students down at the bus station and he needed to go get them. And I mean, that's how they, they got rid of the, the principal and went around. <laughs> she went around to, to all of the rooms and, and the next day they all went on strike 
and, and that led to that suit. Mm-hmm. But uh, but they paid a price. Uh, the county school board shut all schools down for five years, and then they used public money to create white academies and educated the white people. But many of the, many of the blacks during that five year period uh, fell out of the education system, and you know didn't. Uh, and it affected the, the rest of their lives. But uh, yeah. that I think that's the only really major case where a 16-year-old or a couple of 16-year-olds led to the, I mean, this was their decision. It was not their parents' decisions. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes it a, a unique discussion. And I just. Yeah, that is different. Even in Topeka, it was the parents in Topeka that. Yes. Uh, a dozen or so uh, parents attempted to enroll their 20 kids in schools and they were denied to their neighborhood schools they mm-hmm. were denied uh, they were expected to go further to the black school and that was the basis of it so. and, and i talked to the tourism people uh yesterday saying why isn't there a statue of of, of linda brown somewhere well uh, montgomery alabama in 1993 40 years after Rosa Parks, there was no historic marker for Rosa Parks. I, I was working on a travel book about Alabama, and I mean, I was from North Alabama, the Huntsville area, and when I went to Montgomery, I bought one book in the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church basement that said where uh, she got on the bus, and a different book that said where she was arrested, and so I went downtown expecting to see, you know, historic markers in those places, and it in 19, you know, 40 years after Rosa Parks arrested, the only civil rights historic marker in Montgomery was at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to the black congressman's office, and they erected a marker. And uh, a small college, an, a state college, had bought the block. Of the Empire Theater, Rosa Parks was arrested when people were getting on. They had come out of the movie theater, I see. and so all these people were were, were coming on to to get on the bus. Yeah. I mean, everybody says you know she gave up her seat to a white man. That's and she says that's not true. It's there were a number of people get. There was no one specific man. There were just a bunch of people coming out of the movie theater, and uh, so the the president of that college could see the marker and saw all the interest that that was generating and that led to the Rosa Parks Museum. Hmm. Otherwise, I'm, I'm afraid if somebody hadn't done a marker, 50 years after the arrest of Rosa Parks, people would have shown up to a parking deck. I mean, that would have been mm-hmm. embarrassing. It would be an irony that certainly there were probably Civil War statues uh, of Confederate generals in town and nothing about Rosa Parks. Now there is a a great statue of Rosa Parks. I mean, it's just been up a, about a year, mm-hmm. and uh, right at the right at the intersection of where she got on the bus. And the the first couple of times that I was driving, I mean, this is like three blocks from where I work, and I would be driving uh, down the street down Dexter Avenue, and a couple of times I paused to wait for that lady to cross the street, uh-huh. but it was the Rose Parks statue, and it's, I mean, it's a real photo op now, hmm. but but when I was uh, talking with uh, 
the tourism people here, uh, they said a statue of one person uh, would not be appropriate because, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning that Midwesterners are much more modest and uh, then they I get... They would want something to capture the breadth of it rather than focusing on uh, one right. iconic person. Yes. Well, let's, uh, our last stop on our little tour here is Greensboro, North Carolina. I think four black youth uh, in 1960 sat down at the Woolworths lunch counter and ordered some cup of coffee. And uh, they were refused service and thus began the sit-in. They were, just, they were just ignored. Nobody was rude to them. They were ignored. And so when the place closed, they said, we'll be back. And within days, that whole idea of sit-ins spread across the South. Mm. And uh, so, and yeah, that was, that was one of those protests. You know, no adults said, okay, now here's what you need to do. Because uh, it was people like, you know, John Lewis, who was a young man, a young gutsy man. Uh, and Martin Luther King, he, John Lewis, was uh, he grew up hearing Martin Luther King on the radio from Montgomery. John Lewis's home was about 45 miles away. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote to Martin Luther King saying, how can I get involved? And he said, come join us. And he literally did. But Martin Luther King was, he was not thrilled with the idea of sit-ins. But It you, seemed like a peaceful protest. Right. Um, but the, the great thing about Martin Luther King is he knew how to play the media and, and play people like Bull Connor and George Wallace. And uh, he knew how to get media. That's, I think that's what set him apart from other people. Yeah, you have pictures in this book, of course, and and some of that, the pictures are so powerful were so powerful back then that once the nation saw some of these images about how human beings were being treated, and part of that is just getting it out into the media. I think it helped change things. So, so maybe your book will change things. Get a few people to go uh, go on a go on a trip or two. Well, we certainly hope so because, uh, like I said, I, I just wrote short articles so that. People, because I think if, uh, you know, there are good, there are excellent books on the civil rights movement, Eyes on the Prize. I mean, it's, it's a standard. And, but I thought, let's do this in short bites so that people will say, oh, uh, you know, I can spend a couple of minutes reading about what happened in, in Birmingham or Montgomery or Selma. Well, Mr. Sintel, Tourism Director for the state of Alabama and author of the new Civil Rights Trail book, I want to thank you for being with us today. I'm Tim Carpenter of the Kansas Reflector. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.